It's Thursday, March 27th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. I am alone in studio today, but as I mentioned at the end of yesterday's podcast, with me on the line all the way from Sydney, Australia, Uncle Joe Mager. How are you, my friend? I'm great. I'm with you, big guy. <laughs> Not actually in the studio, but with me on the line through the uh, through the magic of uh, technology. Uh, as longtime listeners know, Joe is our advisor on Motley Fool Inside Value, our Australian service, Motley Fool Hidden Gems. We've got the U.S. Hidden Gems, but we have the Australia Hidden Gems. Joe works on that. And also the brand new service in Australia, Motley Fool Pro. We will talk about that in a little bit. But there's a lot going on in the U.S. markets that I wanted to get your thoughts on, Joe. And one is the banks and the stress test that they just went through, because I know you follow the banks. But before we get to that, I want to talk about the IPOs that we have going on, because I was talking with Morgan Housel earlier this week about this. There are people out there saying this market is overheated. And as Exhibit A for some market commentators, they are pointing to the IPOs that we've had recently. And just this week, you've got Grubhub, you've got King Digital Entertainment, the video game company with one hit game, Candy Crush. It's a big hit, but I don't know that it justifies them going public at a valuation that makes them bigger than Hasbro. And maybe the most surprising one of all is Box, which is this company that's a cloud-based computing company. And let me just spot you up with this quote, Joe, and it is from the prospectus that Box filed to go public. They wrote, we have a history of cumulative losses, and we do not expect to be profitable for the foreseeable future. Joe, they're talking about a $2 billion valuation. Sign me up. <laughs> a $2 billion valuation for a company using the phrase cumulative losses? What? I mean, help me out. Is this madness? Uh, it's a little bit of madness. I mean, we're talking about a business that's doing more in operating losses. It's losing more than it's taking in in sales, which is tough to accomplish. And I appreciate that these guys are trying to build a, a large infrastructure and grow so that they can scale on that. You know, that said, this, this valuation is pretty rich. Valuations across the board are rich. I mean, right now you've got the S&P selling at about 18 and a half times earnings. I mean, that's, that's a rich price. You know, historically, we've talked about 15 times earnings as an average. So if you're trying to, to get out and buy dollars for you know, 80 cents on the dollar, you're not going to do that in this market. It's very tough. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the IPOs are, are pretty out of control. You know, you would have thought that Zingo would have been a good lesson about investing in a company with basically just a single hit, but obviously that hasn't resonated. So as someone who is, a, at his core, a value investor, and that's what you are, does part of you get excited about this from the standpoint of, hey, look, if people are going to throw their money at IPOs like this, then they're staying away from value stocks that I prefer? Unfortunately, no. <laughs> and I think that normally that logic is is good. And if you look back at March 2000, that era, the dot-com era, there was a huge divergence in valuations of you know, the super high flyers and old school tech uh, 
Berkshire Hathaway hit its multi-year low at the peak of the tech bubble. <laughs> Just to put that in context. But right now, the dispersions between valuations are the tightest they've been in decades. So what that means is that basically it's there aren't that many cheap stocks in this market. So even though you know, at an average of eighteen and a half, if you said, "Oh, it's the you know the candy crushes of the world that are driving up this market level valuation," in reality, it's it's not just that. It's also those kind of twenty fifth percentile, tenth percentile companies and valuations that just aren't very attractive. And honestly, it's making it's making my job pretty difficult finding uh, value ideas in the U.S. Let's move on to the big banks. Last week, the stress test results came out. 29 of the 30 big banks passed them. I remember you and I talking after the first round of stress tests after the Great Recession, and some of the criticism at the time was, look, these stress tests aren't that rigorous. It seems on the face of it, like this latest round of stress tests was certainly more rigorous than that initial round. First, do you agree with that? And secondly, what were your takeaways from this round? Yeah, I do. They basically threw in a massive provision for additional regulatory fines and lawsuits that just kind of seemed finger in the air. But they were like, let's just take a huge number, as many zeros as we think we can get away with and throw it in. Um, yeah, so I do think it's pretty conservative. We're invested in several banks at Inside Value have been for a while because, you know, you look at loan loss trends, all improving. Job numbers in the states have all been improving. Uh, real estate prices, while they've cooled on a year-over-year basis, have firmed significantly over the past few years. So pretty much any metric that you could look at with the banks have all been improving. So I've been pretty happy with that, and we continue to be pretty happy with that. I mean, now on a high level, you know, even the weaker hands, Bank of America didn't do so great as an inside value recommendation. But you know, relatively speaking, I think the numbers have improved quite a bit, and the shares are still fairly cheap against the the expectations. So across the board, I think as you know, as American investors, we could say we should be happy with how it went. I think uh, the banks are certainly in a, a strong position, certainly compared to what I would say uh, here in Australia. Uh, yeah, and you know, I think we're going to see more dividends flowing back, more. Share repurchases flowing back. We should see some announcements around that actually starting today um, or earlier this week, I should say. And uh, yeah, it's an exciting time to invest in an unexciting industry. Moving over to Apple, the biggest company out there, and the latest news that I'm sure has made its way to you in Australia the fact that Apple is reportedly in talks with Comcast about a partnership resulting in uh, an Apple set-top box that would give them some sort of priority treatment in terms of the pipes. When you first saw this news, what went through your head? Because I'll just tell you, the first thing that went through my head was, from Comcast's standpoint, wait a minute, they haven't even gotten the green light from regulators with respect to Time Warner Cable. What are they doing cozying up to the biggest public company in the world? Yeah, my thought was that Apple here is kind of like the vampire at the window in Salem's Lot. You know, like they can't come in unless you let them. So it's extremely dangerous. So just keep it outside. Don't open the window and you'll just be fine. In this case, I have no idea 
what Comcast would – well, I do have an idea. But in reality, I think there's a lot of risk to Comcast basically opening that window and letting them in, You know, even if it's a really – good-looking vampire and it brought cupcakes like you just leave them outside because if you're comcast you have no reason to risk letting someone else into your ecosystem which you have a really strong grip on you have a really strong market share within the homes who's that you pass with your cable there's very little upside to you to let apple in you know maybe you get a higher rate of uh, market share of the homes you pass incrementally but in doing so you perhaps just gave away what might be one of the most lucrative parts of your business in the future which is you know video on demand video on demand multimedia uh doesn't doesn't strike me as a great deal for comcast i can't see much reason for them to do it i mean ultimately you don't bet your business unless you have to and this isn't a bet the business move but it is a vampire at the window and i can't see the upside to, to apple that the appeal is obvious. You know, of course, you'd love to get that exposure. Uh, you you sell media so that you can sell high margin devices, and they're having trouble selling high margin devices. So, or at least selling enough of them to justify what had been a seven hundred dollars stock price. So, I, I would be surprised if this went through. Part of me wonders if, you know, in in cable and media, these guys are always talking about deals. There are deals and partnerships all over the place being talked about all the time. Uh, here, you know, the guys at Comcast, they're pretty sharp. Uh, they might, you know, this could be part of a broader uh, sway or push into making people think that they're working with outside partners at a time where they're trying to push through a big deal. So, you know, it could be a facade. I was going to say, I don't know of anyone, or I certainly haven't seen or heard of anyone who thinks that there is significant upside for Comcast, which makes me wonder if the conversations they're having with Apple are merely out of being polite because it's such a big company with so much cash, or if, in fact, the way to make it work for Comcast is some ridiculous amount of cash, because say what you will about Apple, but they certainly have a lot of cash sitting around doing nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the two upsides of Comcast, or one, there would be a brand boost. So I don't know anyone that likes Comcast as a consumer, right? I, I know you hate them. And uh, I think that having Apple boxes in the home or a stronger relationship there could do some nice things for the branding, perceptions around the brand, the usability of Comcast. I think that could be a plus for them all around. Um you know, beyond that, I think that uh, it would be uh, fairly tough to justify. I mean, incrementally, let's say that you boost the market share of homes by, you know, a few percentage points, right? So the win here is that is almost pure profit for them because this is a business where all the expenses, not all, but the huge expense has already been laid. So all that fiber was laid long ago. It's run everywhere. And now it's just a matter of flipping switches or sending out a crew to flip a switch and get people online. So to them, you know, there's very little incremental cost, a lot of incremental profit. So if they can use that to get those customers, then cool. That said, I, I don't think it's worth the strategic risk. All right. Before we wrap up, I got to ask you about Motley Fool Pro, which is the new service starting up in Australia that you're heading up. And you just went on a big trip to New Zealand, meeting with a bunch of companies. 
tell me who you met with and what were your takeaways? Yeah, so we met with six different companies in New Zealand. Uh, it was a lot of companies. Most of them, you know, are in Auckland and Wellington. And in Wellington, half the com- uh, three of the companies we talked to were all within about 500 meters of one another. It's a small CBD. Um, I I was pretty excited about New Zealand, but I guess just to zoom out, you know, with Pro, it's a real money service. We're investing one million dollars of full zone money. And it's a high-touch experience that we haven't had here in Australia. I think our members are quite excited. Uh, We opened earlier this week, and demand has been way above expectations. When we first started um, promoting the service a few weeks ago, our servers actually shut down from from the demand. So, you know, there is a a big amount of excitement around Pro. I'm really excited. Uh, We've been working on it for nine months behind the scenes. So so it's great for me to actually just get started with the service, and it's great to see that excitement. Um, so with New Zealand, the reason we went was because there were about two dozen companies that are listed in Australia from New Zealand, but most Australians don't pay attention to them. So in our you know ever-loving quest of trying to find mispriced opportunities, we hopped on a plane and flew over to New Zealand. <laughs> Talk to some really interesting companies. Um, you know, one is Sky Network TV. Here's a company that I would describe as, you know, DirecTV plus Comcast plus Time Warner in terms of pay TV. Uh, they're just an overwhelming Goliath. I was going to say, the word that comes to mind is dominance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's huge. And it's actually run by an American, a guy who was one of John Malone's lieutenants for a long time. And any cable nerds out there will know who John Malone is, but he's the man who basically rolled up the U.S. cable industry and turned it into the the monolith that it is today. He's a mentor to the head of Comcast. So if you if you hate cable companies, you can probably blame John Malone. Anyway, so this guy uh, learned a lot from him and has built an incredible business, uh, just tremendous economics, yet nobody here in Australia talks about it because it's a New Zealand company, even though it's listed here, and they do that so they can get access to, to a lot of big Australian capital. But... Nobody talks about it. So opportunities like that, and, and I'm pretty excited to, to have talked to a few of those companies, and I won't get into all of them, but there's a lot of interest here. Culturally, how do Australians, how does the average Australian view New Zealand? Because the, the way you just described it, it makes me think, like, perhaps part of the mentality is, oh, that's New Zealand. There can't possibly be any good investment ideas there. Or am I wrong? Yeah, I, am I, I agree. Wrong? There's an element of that. Yeah, there's an element of that. I think the relationship is like it's one of those one-sided rivalries, kind of like not to offend you, but how the Yankees and Red Sox were for a long time, and and the tables have, have turned mightily. But it was one of those situations where the Red Sox, being New Zealand, think that you know they're huge rivals, and then Yankee fans are like, oh, the Red Sox are a rival. Like, like oh, I didn't know that. Uh, similar setup here. And Australians just don't pay much attention to New Zealand, but that's great, you know, because that means that as investors, you can invest in some very high quality businesses that nobody else is paying attention to. And particularly down under, frankly, these markets are just less competitive. Uh, There's not a lot of competition in New Zealand, and there aren't a lot of major companies pushing into New Zealand. So Amazon doesn't have a distribution center in all of Australia. And they don't compete in Australia, essentially. Um, they don't compete 
essentially New Zealand. I mean, you can buy stuff from Amazon, but the shipping times take forever. There's limited selection. Uh, so there are companies locally that have filled that filled that gap. And in New Zealand, which is just one degree away further removed from the Australian experience, it's that much more monopolistic at the local level and less competitive. I mean, the population is less than the city of Atlanta for the whole country. So there's just not a lot of people fighting for that business. But that's great if you're an investor looking for, you know, underappreciated monopolies, duopolies. For anyone interested, and we do have a couple of our dozens of listeners who are in Australia and New Zealand, uh, let me give the URL, and I'll give it twice because it's uh, a little lengthy. Uh, you can find out more about the new Motley Fool Pro service in Australia by going to fool.com.au slash mfpro. Let me say that again, fool.com.au slash mfpro. By the way, on my way into the studio, I passed by... Brian Hinman, who works on the Motley Fool Pro service here in the U.S., he wanted me to tell you that it's entirely possible he's going to be suing you for the the use of the name Motley Fool Pro. I 100% (laughs) stole that name. 100%. When we were talking about the name for Pro Down Under, there were a lot of different ideas. I was like, guys, let me just solve this for you right now. Pro. (laughs) Game over. Oh, oh, by the way, you'll love this. So our research analyst at Pro, Matt Joss, he actually listened to the original Angry Uncle Joe podcast. Really? Uh, the what? Yeah, the Market Foolery, where like me and Bill got, or Bill and I, yeah, Bill and I got into this huge argument about Amazon and Walmart. You got a little. Yeah, heated he totally enough. heard that one. <laughs> yeah. That is fantastic. Last question, and then I'll let you go. You've been in Australia for a while. How has your perspective as an investor, as an analyst, changed in the time that you've been down there? Well, I spend a lot more time talking to management teams now. So in the States, it's really hard to talk to management unless you're looking at very small companies. They just write you off because they have so many people talking to them. Um, For perspective, for the average 200 largest companies in the U.S., there are about 33 analysts that provide earnings guidance. In Australia, it's seven. So there's just a lot less competition when I get on the phone down here, and it's easy for me to go in, meet with CEOs, and honestly, you learn more in an hour talking to a CEO one-on-one than you would in a week studying filings, looking at the website, et cetera. So it's, it's definitely taught me a lot about the value of just getting in and talking to management teams and, and focusing on opportunities where you can get that access. To find out more about Motley Fool Pro, once again, you can go to fool.com.au slash mfpro. That's fool.com.au dot mfpro. Always good to talk to you, my friend. We'll definitely have you back on before the Berkshire Hathaway meeting. I want to get your thoughts on that. Absolutely. Joe Mager, thank you for being here, my friend. All right. Later, mate. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Ann Henry. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week. (laughs) 